Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Bradley, and welcome back to another episode of Let's Dive Deep. Today we are going to be continuing our deep dive into the hit Netflix series Bridgerton and discussing the third episode of season one entitled The Art of the Swoon, which is, again, another three for three perfect episode title. This one's a little more on the nose than the other two, but I really liked it because you obviously with The Art of the Swoon, you have... Lady Cowper and all of the actual swooning she does, but you also have Daphne and Simon and their kind of banter about creating like a book called The Art of the Swoon and how they relate it to being on a battlefield. Either way, again, episode titles tell you a lot about an episode and this one works on a, on a variety of different levels and I really enjoyed it. Before we get started, I want to remind everyone that Let's Dive Deep contains adult content. For instance, in this episode, two of our characters, you can never guess which two these could possibly be, one of them explains to the other one how they might be able to pleasure themselves at night, but not when they go to bed. So, if that's not something that you want to discuss further, or for some reason you've turned this podcast on in a car full of six-year-olds, now is a great time to tune out of the podcast so we don't discuss it with you by accident. On this podcast, we will also not be spoiling anything that happens past episode three. So if you are coming from just watching the third episode of Bridgerton, you're all good to go. I will not be spoiling anything that happens past this. I'm watching these as I write my notes and do the recordings anyway, so I can't really spoil much regardless. But it's just good to know that wherever you are on your Bridgerton journey, whether you are coming back from episode three or you have binge watched the whole thing and you are just coming back to listen to podcasts afterwards, you are good to go here. This is a safe space for you. There will be no spoilers past episode three. We will be talking about episode one and two, though, if there's anything there that can relate to our analysis. And finally, before we get started diving deep into this episode, I just wanted to say thank you to you guys for what a wonderful reception this podcast has received. As of, as of recording this, the first two episodes have only been out for a couple of days, and between the two of them, they have almost 200 downloads already, and those downloads are split pretty evenly between the episodes, which means people that are listening to episode one are often going to listen to episode two, and I really appreciate that. You guys are also from a variety of different countries, which is really cool. I wasn't expecting people from Sweden and Brazil to be into the podcast. Podcast, but I do appreciate all the support, so thank you so much for that. If you would like to find us on Twitter, we are at Twitter at Let's Dive Deep. That is where you will be able to get all the information about what we will be doing after Bridgerton. Obviously, if all you want to listen to is our Bridgerton podcast, you can just subscribe to this feed and that'll be there. But we are doing some shows after Bridgerton that will be in different feeds. And if you want that intel, that'll be on Twitter at Let's Dive Deep. If you want to email me and let me know what you thought of the episode, what some of your takes were, things you'd like me to chat about, if it's worth mentioning in the next episode, I'll bring it up if it adds to the discussion of the episode after. I will read them at the beginning of the next podcast episode. So that is letsdivedeeppod at gmail.com if you want to let me know what your thoughts and opinions on this episode of Bridgerton were. And finally, if you are enjoying this episode wherever you are enjoying it, on Apple, on Spotify, on wherever else you can listen to podcasts, this thing is everywhere, feel free to go and leave a review. It would be really, really helpful because... A, it makes me feel good when people leave five-star reviews, but also it means the podcast will go out to more people and more people will be able to find it and enjoy it. What are you doing hiding away in here? Enjoying some culture. You are receiving glowing reviews from Whistledown. Did you see? I did. I ought to take to the stage. <laughs> Is it awful that I'm enjoying it? My wild jealousy. Fooling Lady Whistledown. She knows everything about everyone, even the Queen, and yet we have her utterly convinced that we are mad for each other. We are awfully clever. 
Indeed we are. Excessive pride suits you, Miss Bridgerton. Mm, pride is a sin, Your Grace. One of the lesser sins, but do not worry. It must all start somewhere. You are not half as shocking as you think you are. This episode was written by Chris Van Dusen, who is the showrunner of Bridgerton and the person that wrote episode one. So that is a name that should be familiar to you guys. Finally, we're getting familiar with these people. And it was directed by Tom Verica, who directed episode two as well. Oftentimes when these types of shows are shot, they will shoot them by location or they will block the episodes together. And what that means is, let's say you have to shoot a bunch of balls at the same castle area, right? Or you have the same set for a bunch of different things, but you only have that set for a couple of weeks or a couple of months or however long you have it for. You have to film the show in, in non-chronological order. A lot of these things aren't in chronological order. In fact, in one of the cast interviews I remember seeing just before I watched the show, um, I think that it was the girl that plays Daphne was saying how one of the first scenes she shot, she shot, that's hard to say, was in episode six. So this, this isn't filmed in chronological order. And they usually do that by blocking the episode. So I don't mean to be like a TV expert, but oftentimes in shows like Outlander, for instance, the episodes are blocked. And so you will have the same writer, the same director, and the same director of photography working together on episodes to make it a little bit easier to deal with the on-location, shooting-out-of-order nature of doing this. Is You'll have a group of people of the creative team that all stay the same. What I found really interesting about this is that Chris Van Dusen wrote an episode that was not directed by Tom Verica, and Tom Verica directed an episode not written by Chris Van Dusen. So we'll see if this pattern continues, but it's just in my head interesting to note that these are not groups of people that are blocked together. Chris Van Dusen might write any old episode and Tom Verica might direct any old episode, and it's not necessarily blocked into groups of writers, directors, and directors of photography. Like, it could sometimes be in other shows. My score for this episode is going to be a solid 7.7. I think it is the best episode of Bridgerton so far. I think the highs are much higher than any of the first two episodes. I do think, though, I'm having a, a few larger issues with the plot. Not that they're big issues. 7.7 .7 is still fantastic. I'm enjoying this show. I really love it. I loved this episode. This episode is very, very good. I just think the issues I'm having now are not episode specific. They're more plotline specific or character arc specific. And so I do want to talk about them. I think this is decisively... Uh, better than the first two, but I don't think it's approaching eight yet. I don't think we've hit that eight out of ten yet where you're really going from very good television to great television. I think this episode of Bridgerton is fantastic. It's funny. It's cute. It's charming. It's romantic. It's it's intense in parts, and you can really dive into it and, and get emotionally attached, but there are parts that take you out of it a little bit, that the character arcs that I'm just not quite getting into and so I think a 7.7 .7 is a perfectly fair rating for this episode better than the first two but still has a few things I want to chat about and a few things I hope they iron out as the season progresses now obviously with a 7.7 .7, best episode of Bridgerton so far there's so much more that worked for me than didn't work for me the first thing, and I'm going to talk about it every time I notice it and every time it enhances my experience with Bridgerton because it's very unique and I think it's very important. Let's talk once again, just like episode one, about the music and the sets and the costumes and the lighting and the editing and the directing and all of that put together. I really missed it in episode two, but in episode three, you get some really cool covers of modern songs played on kind of classical Regency era instruments, or at least something that sounds to me 
like classical Regency era instruments. I'm an idiot, so if it sounds vaguely classical, I'm just going to lump it all together. But this time it was Billie Eilish's Bad Guy, which is such a good song to set up that scene, that introduction to the ball. It really brings you into it. But again, and it just gives you that permission like, look, we know this show is a little bit ridiculous. We know we're making it for a 2021 audience. We know you don't live in these times. So just kick back. Relax. Watch Bridgerton. There's going to be a little Billie Eilish thrown in there. And I just loved it. Combined with, again, the costumes, the lighting, the editing, all of these extracurriculars that you wouldn't normally notice just really stand out in this episode. And it's one of the things I'm, I'm, I'm very much enjoying about Bridgerton is that not only can I just sit back and kind of get lost in this super kind of cheesy but really cool kind of romantic plot line. But all of these extracurricular things are going to enhance the experience. And I was actually thinking about it as I was watching this episode of Bridgerton. I think part of Bridgerton's charm right now and why I'm really loving it so much, even though it's not typically something I might really enjoy, is just the time it was released. You know, after after 2020, um, I'll speak for myself, but I think a lot of people like tired exhausted. COVID is just exhausting to have to try and deal with. There's just a lot of things going on. It was a pretty awful day in the US recently. I'm not going to talk about that on this podcast. Um, But there's just a lot going on. And sometimes the weight of the world can just feel exhausting. I think especially in 2020 for a lot of people, it can feel that way. And so having Bridgerton come out at this time where I can really just escape from all of the kind of shitty things that are happening and just dive into a show that's not going to make me feel shitty or that's not going to have a whole bunch of shitty things happening to all the characters all the time is super, super nice. And it just, it's just such a good, I was watching this episode and I was just smiling the whole time. I was so happy to take an hour of my day to really just enjoy this episode of television. And I think Bridgerton is doing a really cool thing. And I think this show works so much better being released now than if it had been released in 2018, for instance. Of course, we wouldn't really have a Bridgerton at all without Daphne and Simon. And once again, they really worked for me in this episode. We have so much to talk about between these guys. I'm going to break this episode a little bit differently or down a little bit differently just to really give Daphne and Simon their due. These guys are the heartbeat of the show. These guys make the magic happen. The sexy ass Duke, Simon, and the... I don't really know as much about Daphne, but the damsel in distress good-looking, attractive, star of the season, diamond of the first water, if you will. Um, But between the two of them, I'm just vibing with everything they're doing. Their acting is fantastic. Now, there are... That was a... Wow, that hasn't happened in a long time, that kind of voice crack. You guys are going through this podcast, listening to a podcast about Bridgerton, but also how a 25-year-old goes through his second puberty. That hurt my throat. I'm not going to lie to you. Oh, boy. Okay. Daphne and Simon, heartbeat of the show. They were incredible this episode. Their chemistry is just off the charts. Now, they don't have as much chemistry as some other on-screen couples that I've seen before, but they have enough chemistry for this show, more than enough for this show, and that's perfect. I believe in this couple. I really enjoyed how they interacted with each other. Everything from that first dream sequence where he... The way he pulls that glove off of her is absolutely ridiculous. The way he, like, centrally licks a spoon. Like, everything about it, right? The uh, the whole thing. 
The whole thing. And then they have that conversation, which we'll talk about, the adult content conversation, which we'll talk about later. But just everything about these guys, the little looks, the acting, the way the scenes are written for these characters, they go through a lot of ups, ups and downs this episode. I think their highest highs happen this episode, at least so far in the third episode, and their lowest lows so far happen in this episode, and I'm there for the whole ride. None of it feels weird or out of place or undeserved or like it shouldn't be in the show, and I'm really starting to buy, again, I, I mentioned it in episode two, but you need to buy into the relationship of these two characters, and I really am, and that's I don't have much more to say about it now, um, but it really worked for me, and these guys have to work for you to, to get any enjoyment out of the show, I think, and, and they're absolutely killing it. The Prince. The Prince also worked for me. Can we talk about The Prince here? The Prince should have been here from episode one. It was the only thing that really took me out of the first two episodes of Bridgerton was Lord's Burbrook character. Lord Burbrook's character. I've had a single beer before I recorded this podcast, and it's clearly affecting the way I pronounce Lord Burbrook. <laughs> this could get messy real fast, ladies and gentlemen. Lord Burbrook sucked. His character sucked. It was fine for the first two episodes, but one of the things I kept harping on, and my only real big complaint, is he wasn't a threat to the Duke. Why would anyone, Sans Anthony, who's still a dinkhead after this episode, but a little bit less of a dink, why would she ever end up with him? There was never any threat. The Duke is just better, socially better, better by status, better by title, better by all of it. He's a nicer person. So there's no reason for her to ever end up with Burbrook. And the reason they gave me just fell kind of flat. But now you have the prince. And there's a reason why Daphne should end up with the prince. And it makes this really competitive between him and the Duke. The Duke doesn't want to get married and have kids. Daphne really wants this. The prince does want to get married and have kids. Boom. Conflict. Brilliant. The prince, Lady Whistledown even says it in this episode, the prince is a prince. Why would you settle for a duke when you can have a prince? A thing Lady Whistledown says in this episode of Bridgerton. So why was Lord Burbrook ever there? This is perfect. This is absolutely perfect. You finally have some competition. She wants to be with the duke. Right? That is where this is going. That is where this is definitely ending up. It's about the journey. And she wants to be with the Duke. But this guy is a technically better option in every way that matters socially. And he's a nice guy. He's not a, he's not a dickhead. Which is important. Because if this guy really sucks personality-wise, then there's, there's another reason to go back for the Duke. But now... Now you have a real competition. Her heart is with the Duke, but everything her brain and everyone else in this show is going to be telling her is to go with the prince. And this is exactly what we needed from episode one. If the prince had just been here the whole time, episode one and two would have worked so much better. And they were already great episodes. I just want to thank the Bridgerton staff for putting the prince in here because it was really something that I wanted from episode one and two. So I think it would have been nice if the prince was there the whole time and we just axed Lord Burbrook. But I'm glad he's here now and we'll see where this goes. By the way this episode ends, there's clearly a lot of friction between him and the Duke. Not that they know that yet, but there's clearly, like, you know there's going to be a lot of friction for Daphne about kind of who to choose and how this is going to end up. And I'm excited to see where it goes. Lastly, I just want to point this out up top for the things that worked for me in this episode, even though I, I probably won't mention it too much as we break down the episode. Anthony's character is getting better, and I just want to say it, because we're three episodes into this podcast, and I've spent the first two episodes firmly dunking on Anthony, and I will continue to firmly dunk on Anthony in this episode, but 
he does have he I don't want to say any redeeming scenes because I don't think any of the scenes really redeem his character for me, but he has scenes that add layers. He has a scene with Daphne in the kitchen where they're trying to get milk, and that's really hilarious, and we'll talk about that. And that's it adds layers to his character, and he's actually being nice and at least kind of telling Daphne something that resembles the truth about something, which is awesome. I also think that his scene with Sienna, I felt like he actually cared about her. She mentions that it's because of jealousy. And in my head, I'm like, I think, I think he's jealous because he cares about you. Not just because he wants to sleep with you. I, I did get the sense in this episode that Anthony, he's developing. He's learning. There are more layers to his character than there were before. And so we're just waiting for that to fully kind of flesh out. But it's getting better. So I thought I'd mention it at the top of the podcast. There were two things that didn't quite work for me this episode. And both of them are writing related. The first is Anthony just in one scene, but it was really weird for me that the episode was written this way, and maybe I missed something. Maybe I'm not quite understanding what they're trying to do with Anthony's character, but there was one scene where they are in the drawing room of the Bridgerton house, and Daphne is talking about how she's going to be patient, and she has lots of suitors, and she's going to take her time, and then Simon says, or Simon, sorry, um, Anthony says something like, good girl. Like, as if he's acknowledging that that's a good idea. And then I immediately paused the episode. Like, it took me a little bit out of the episode. And I'm, like, watching this to take notes, right? So I'm watching it, like, pretty... Like, I'm not on my phone or anything while it's happening. So maybe no one else noticed this. Or maybe other people didn't. It was... I have no idea. I haven't gone on social media to see how people feel about things. Because I don't want to spoil it for myself. But... But... It just took me out of it. It's like, this guy spent the last two episodes doing everything possible to make the worst possible decisions for Daphne as quickly as possible with the least amount of her consent possible. And then in one episode, he gets two words to flip that whole opinion upside down. I understand if what they were trying to do with Anthony was... Like, there are layers to him this episode. I think they're trying to redeem him a little bit or at least add a little more complexity. I think what they were trying to get across is, hey, this guy sucks. You know he sucks. We know he sucks. No one likes him. He's been a dink. But he's learning. He's learning. He's a smart guy. He went to college. He put a farm animal in uh, Simon's dorm. He knows what he's talking about. He got good grades. He's learning. He's adapting. But what they gave him to make that flip was two words, and they were good girl, which is not enough. It's not enough the writing there, I think, got a little bit away from the storyline. And it's a small thing. You know, this is still a 7.7. It's not a huge deal. I just want to point it out because I think that scene could have benefited from a little more expansion. Like, Anthony, give me more than two words. More than two words about your whole personality flip would be ideal. The next thing that didn't quite work for me is just Marina's whole ass storyline. Does anyone care about Marina? Like, I care about Marina in the sense that I don't want her to end up with any of these weird guys she has to dance with. I care about Marina in the sense that I don't want her to end up living like the people that Lady Featherington takes her to live with. But I am not emotionally invested at all in her character arc storyline. Like, in Marina's storyline, I'm more invested in what Penelope's doing in it. Right? Which is not how you're meant to feel. 
And then in that Lady Featherington scene, which I want to talk about, where where she takes her to the the London slums, for lack of a better word, uh, I, you're meant to side with Marina at the end of that scene, and I sided pretty decisively with Lady Featherington, uh, plus or minus a little bit. But I I've, I felt more like I was like, oh yeah, Lady Featherington's got the right idea here. And so Marina's whole thing is just falling a little flat for me. Not that I don't enjoy watching it. Not that every time she comes on the screen, I go, oh, now I have to get through this scene. But it's just compared to everything else going on, it's just not as interesting. And it's falling a little bit flat. And I don't know if it's the writing. I suspect it must be the writing because there was one scene this episode with the opera singer, what's her name, Sienna? We have a name for her now. I don't know if I missed it or if it was in this episode, but I know it's Sienna now. So we have Sienna and the modiste, and they're having, they had a single conversation, and I was more emotionally invested, and I cared more about that conversation, which was with two characters we're not really meant to care that much about, and, and a scene that doesn't even really matter that much. And I, and I, I like that more than what I'm getting from Marina. So maybe it gets better. Marina's clearly here to stay. She's clearly one of at least our secondary characters. So we're going to see a lot more of her, hopefully. I just need it to be a little bit tighter writing, right? I need Anthony's to be a little more expanded. I need hers to be a little tighter. Give me the main hits about why I should care about Marina because the rest of the extracurricular stuff isn't quite sitting with me. I don't know if anyone else feels that way. You can email me and let, let me know. But that's kind of how I felt about Marina this episode. I thought a lot about how I wanted to break down this episode. The last, the first two, I thought it made a lot of sense because everything's brand new and we're still learning and we still need to go to all these new places and meet all these new people. It made sense to break it down just scene by scene, point by point, to make sure we really don't miss anything. I think in this episode, it might make more sense to break it down character by character. So we're going to start with some of our extra characters, you know, our tertiary ones, our secondary ones. Characters we see lots of, we'll break down kind of how their storylines went this episode. And then we'll move on to our main characters and we will end with Daphne and Simon. I want to do all of Daphne and Simon stuff in one big block at the end. I think it's important. I think it tells a really, really cool story. So I don't want to leave them kind of being chopped up by everyone else's. Let's take a look at all the extra secondary tertiary characters in this show and what they had to do this episode and then we'll end with all of the Daphne and Simon stuff because there's a lot of it and some of it's really really funny and I'm excited to talk about it. Eloise and Benedict, we'll start with them, have, have a really fun episode. Eloise is is a layered character, but she's pretty she's pretty much playing a role this episode, and that role is to just be the avatar for the audience of somebody who just really dislikes how society favors men over women. You see it multiple times this episode. The first time is when they are looking at all the paintings at Somerset House and they go to this painting and Eloise says like there's a it's a there's a painting and there's nude women all over this painting and she says, "Why do men only look at women as decorative objects?" And I vibed with that. I agree with Eloise here, right? That's that's likely what's happening. I don't think she's really analyzing the art though. Maybe there's an artist who's just particularly taken and maybe those are based off models. I'm not an art critic or anything, but I think Eloise is just being the audience avatar here. She's not meant to be someone who's critically analyzing this painting, she's just meant to be someone's like, hey, this was painted by a guy. Of course, there's nude women on it, right? None of those nude women could make this painting. So this whole situation sucks. And I wish I wish I had the, I, I'm not good at painting. I don't want to paint, but I wish I had the opportunity is what she's getting at. 
She also has a scene later with Benedict at the swings where they're back at the swings. I want to talk about this scene a little bit. I really enjoyed that the swings are now a thing Benedict and Eloise do. It really adds a lot to their characters for me. Um, they're siblings. They clearly love each other. But I like how in just a couple of episodes that swing set has become... Um, it went from a place that was typically not a place they were allowed to be. The first time Eloise is smoking over there, Benedict kind of catches her and she tells him like, yeah, 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 give me the trouble later. Just let me do my thing over here. And then Benedict sits down with her and talks to her. And I like how this is becoming a thing that they do now, right? As Benedict approaches or as the scene comes in, they, it feels like they've been doing this a couple of times and they're connecting in that way. And I like that for these characters that they're finding a way to connect with each other as siblings, but also Benedict in this scene has a lot of uh, sympathy for Eloise. And Eloise is also like trying to kick his ass a little bit. She's like, look, I know you like writing. I saw your sketchbook, whatever, whatever. And you just need to go do it. You are a man. If you want the sun and the moon, all you have to do is go and shoot at the sky. And Benedict um, is kind of just staring at her in this scene, and Eloise is making a lot of good points. I like what Eloise is doing here. She's making a lot of good points. She is playing the avatar of someone who just hates how society favors men over women. The painting scene and the way she kind of tells Benedict, like, look, I see that you're good at sketching. Just go fucking be an artist. Like, don't sit here and whinge about it. Just go and do it. And I really appreciated that from Eloise this episode. Benedict also has a really funny episode. He's in two main scenes, and the first one is at the Somerset house when they're looking at all the artwork. And what's amazing about this scene is he's standing beside Lady Danbury, and he's he's just he's just taking a dump on this painting. He has no idea what it is, what it means, who painted it, why they painted it. He thinks it should be skied like the rest of the paintings, which I'm assuming just like put up way up high where no one can see it is my guess and then lady danbury turns and goes well why don't we ask the artist why this painting sucks so much and then the artist is standing right there they're a group of three and he doesn't know that the artist is right there now we do get the artist's name what is this artist's name here i i, I want to say it just in case it becomes important i can't remember right now i gotta get to the point in my notes eloise and benedict no 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 no, no. where is it somerset house mr granville Mr. Granville. So the artist is Mr. Granville and he's there and then he just leaves. He's just like, sorry, I have to go find my wife. And Benedict feels so bad and he, he chastises Lady Danbury a bit and he's like, yo, mate, why would you let me talk shit about this painting if you knew the artist was right beside me? And then Lady Danbury is like, because it was funny, dude. And I really like this from Benedict. He clearly likes art. He clearly likes being an art critic. He's trying to analyze this painting and this art and the artist is right there. And it's just a very, very funny thing, but it helps us understand that Bene Benedict lights painting. And that's very important for later when he is sitting on the, on the swing set with Eloise and he's been sketching in his sketchbook. There's a little cutscene where he's throwing some of his sketches away. And I guess that's what Eloise has been seeing. And then he gets his ass kicked a little bit by Eloise and that, that'll bump him up. I think I wouldn't be surprised if the next couple episodes, we, we see him either being an artist or exploring art a little bit more, or at least telling his family that that's a, that's a career he'd like to pursue, or at least off to the side doing it. I'm I'm not sure where it's going with Benedict, but I think they really effectively, with the little time they gave us with Benedict, set him up as someone who's interested in art, who's probably going to explore it further, and should take advantage of the fact that he's the second born, and a man, and can kind of just do whatever he wants. Marina and Lady Featherington have quite the episode 
And this is the plot line that fell a little bit flat for me, but I also think there's a lot here to analyze, so I'm excited to talk about it. Marina starts off this episode kind of complaining to Lady Featherington, like, you can't lock me up in here forever, yada yada. Lady Featherington is chastising Penelope for being in the room, which is really, really funny. And Lady Featherington is laying down the law. She's like, you're right. You need to go back out into society and you need to find yourself a husband because you do not understand the gravity of your situation. She takes Marina to the Modiste to get fit. The Modiste completely knows that she's pregnant, by the way. Lady Featherington is going on this rant about, oh, she just really likes cake. She eats too much cake as if she doesn't have control over the cake or anything. And then she says, like, oh, we'll put her on a reducing diet that'll do her wonders. And the Modiste is just giving her this stink eye, like, shut shut up, Lady Featherington. I know. I fit a lot of people, and this lady is definitely pregnant, all right? But she doesn't say that. She just gives this look, a, a nice little bit of filmmaking there to, to give us, to show, don't tell. Don't tell us that Modiste knows. Just show us that the Modiste knows. And I thought that was really effective and then they go to somerset house and they're looking at all the art and penelope comes in marina is is being set up with this older fellow you know not a bad looking older fellow compared to some of the people that she might be able to end up with this clearly was not the worst possible option and she wants none of it she's mouthing over to penelope to come help her out penelope comes in and interrupts and lady featherington has an absolute fit being like she, i think she calls her a meddlesome little wench which is really rude but i think penelope was meddling a little bit she knew what she was doing i'll say that penelope knew what she was doing but for marina she's stuck right she has this love this person she loves in spain They've been writing to her. Penelope's been trying to find those letters, which is also really sweet of Penelope to do. But she is stuck. There is nothing that she wants to do other than have the father of this child. She's pregnant and she wants to be with the father of this child. And I think a lot of people who are watching the show can probably relate to that. And she doesn't want to be with these old <laughs> these old guys. And one of the old guys, the guy, the first guy she was introduced to, says something. I've never seen such a beautiful girl with such an ugly countenance. I have no idea what a countenance is. But when he said it, it made perfect sense in my head. But for Marina, she's stuck here. She's stuck here. And I understand why she's stuck there. But what it's doing is it's paralyzing her opportunities. She is pregnant. If she... If she has babies out of wedlock, if she has this kid out of wedlock, that has a whole host of social problems that she might face. But she's in love with this person, and this person is the father, and they don't have any proof that he either doesn't want to come back or that he isn't coming back, other than he hasn't been writing. But this guy's in the army, so he could have been fighting. And so I understand where Marina's coming from here. But, this is a big but, Lady Featherington is somebody who does not want to deal with Marina. This is somebody who had Marina dropped off in her lap by her husband, who, who pretty much just said, yeah, 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 go make it work. Marina shows up and is showing up her own daughters. Lady Featherington's own daughters are being shown up by Marina, and she's legitimately at least trying and putting in the effort to explain to Marina what will happen to her if she has kids out of wedlock, right? And she's doing this despite, like, I don't know if she should want to do this. I like Lady Featherington in this episode. This is not a problem she should have to deal with. And she has to deal with it despite the fact it is taking her attention away from her own daughters, who she's trying to marry off, who are already struggling. And so for Lady Featherington, she decides there's two things she needs to do. The first thing is she takes Marina to the London slums. I don't want to use the word slum. There was no subtitle word to 
replace it with. I don't know what to call them. I'm just going to call them the slums, even though it's not quite the same thing. But Marina gets there. And Lady Featherington says, like, look, this is what will happen to you. These are all these people that are not in a good situation. Would you like to be that? And Marina stands her ground, which, again, I guess I understand from her perspective. And she says, there's just a lot of hardworking people here who are trying to look after their kids. And that is true. And I appreciate that from Marina. And I agree with that. But... Lady Featherington, I think, has the right of it here. I don't know if this is a 50-50 opinion online. I think you're meant to leave this scene siding with, with Marina, and I just don't. Lady Featherington, someone who is providing Mar- Marina with food and water and a nice house and a place to sleep and money and a good place to raise a child. Marina has all those things right now. Now, obviously, she, if she were to be married, would go to her husband's place, but it's the same kind of concept. And she's explaining to Marina, these people don't have any food. They don't have any money, right? And is this the best way to raise a child? And while I agree with Marina's sentiment, surely if what you want most is the best situation for your child, this makes no sense, right? If what you want is the best situation for yourself, maybe in some weird way, you know, having a kid out of wedlock and not marrying anyone and ending up a little bit like this, Uh, in the slums of London, you know, unwed, having, I think they would call the kid a bastard back then, then that's what you can do. But I think Lady Featherington's right to be like, look, I get that you love this guy. Guy, And she even says, guys say all kinds of things when they want to have sex with you, and then they leave once you're pregnant. Like, that is a thing men do. This guy's never coming back. He's never going to write to you. You need to figure this out and marry someone. Now, where this gets a little bit suspicious for me, And where I'm kind of out on Lady Featherington is when she forges that letter. So Marina has been writing to this guy in Spain uh, who is not, I think it's an English guy in Spain. Either way, though, someone who is fighting a war, he's on the front lines, and she has been writing to him saying, like, I love you so much. Um, I'm pregnant, yada, yada. So Lady Featherington and the help in her house, the, the maid, the servant, I don't know what word they would use. But they forge a letter from this guy back to Marina that says, I don't want anything to do with you. Get out of here. Stop writing to me. Whatever it says. And Marina loses her mind. And and I think the assumption here is now Marina will understand this guy's never coming back, which we don't even know is true. Hey, it could happen. Maybe this guy will come back. I have no idea. Right? But Lady Featherington's trying to put an end to it so she will come to her senses and at least marry someone sensible for her station and for the ability to raise her kid in a good household. And while Lady Featherington's probably going about it slightly the wrong way and slightly dishonestly, Marina's not really leaving her many options. And I I pretty much agree with Lady Featherington's sentiment here. And so I don't really know how to feel. Is Lady Featherington the type of person to actually kick Marina out onto the streets if she were to have a kid out of wedlock? I have no idea. Is it a situation where just socially you have to? Like, if you don't, like, you just, it, maybe it's socially or religiously not a thing you can have in your house. I have no idea how that would look. I suppose we'll find out because we don't know what's going to happen with Marina. But the whole thing kind of fell flat for me because I wasn't agreeing with Marina. So I just don't care about her. I'm just like, yeah, Marina, stop being you. I understand your your point. You, you, I think you need to listen to Lady Featherington here. This is clearly a better situation for you. And so the whole thing just kind of fell flat for me. 
But it was a really good set of scenes. I did learn a little bit more about Lady Featherington and Marina. And if the storyline was was hidden for me, if I was emotionally invested, there's enough here. And I do enjoy that at least they are taking the time to explain Marina's situation. If it's working for you, then you probably really loved these scenes. With regards to Marina and Lady Featherington, I also want to call it just a little bit of editing. Well, I think the editing in this episode was off the charts good. There was a little bit here. Maybe it's directing. Maybe it's writing. But the whole thing where it just really was weird, it's when they are forging the letter, Lady Featherington and the help, and they say the words, Lady Featherington says something like, so all of our work has paid off. Marina has found the letter. She's screaming in her room. She's upset. She's sad. And Lady Featherington and the help can hear her. And Lady Featherington is like, I think our work paid off. And the help looks a little bit disturbed. Like, did we do the right thing? Was that, was that an okay thing to do? Are we the baddies here? And... That told you everything you needed to know. You needed to know that Lady Featherington forged that letter and you could tell by the way they were looking at each other, by the way they were acting. Show, don't tell. They showed me that and then they immediately followed it up with a whole scene of them actually forging the letter. And I I was just like, no, no, don't show me that scene. Leave it. It was perfect. Let it breathe. You gave me that moment. You let me figure it out. I'm a smart guy. I was watching. Trust the audience a little bit. I really felt like they weren't trusting their audience with that. It's a small thing to nitpick, but it's something I talk about all the time. And if I'm going to do a podcast talking about all the good things and all the bad things and just, just generally chatting about a TV show, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about that because it really bugged me i'm surprised i forgot to put it up in the things that didn't work for me because i was like i came from such a high where that scene was perfect right lady featherington has done something where you agree with her point you weren't meant to but i agreed with her point but she went about it in the wrong way and i'm feeling conflicted is she the good guy is she the bad guy and then they just they told me what they just showed me and oh it just really oh man okay let's move on Sienna, the opera singer, has a small little arc in this episode, and I thought I'd talk about it, mostly because I really freaking enjoyed it. I did not think, if you had told me going into episode three, we have five episodes left, we're going to give you a Sienna storyline. I would have been like, get me out of here. Like, I get enough of her with Anthony's storyline, I understand. I don't need more Sienna. I enjoyed having Sienna in this episode. It's a small little arc, but it's very important. I know I mentioned earlier that I liked that she was a character with layers and not just Anthony's side piece, and I still feel that way about her. And it really, I don't know if it's the acting, it must be, because I just care about this more about than all of Marina's shit that she has going on. She's at the Modiste, and she's explaining to the Modiste, or the Modiste is implying like, hey, you can stay here until you you have another situation. And... It's implied that she, or it's just said straight up, I can't exactly remember, that she is sleeping around for a place to live, which really sucks. This is someone who's talented. This is someone who's good at her job. This is someone who very rich and powerful people see all the time. Her operas are sold out and they look full to me. Obviously, people are paying for those seats. So why is she, why does she not have enough money in this society to at least live on her own? Also implied is the modiste is living at her shop. So now she doesn't even have money for a separate house if she's got the whole shop set up for Sienna to even stay at, right? Because she's not staying at the modiste's house. She's staying at the shop. And so these are talented women, good at their jobs, that rich and powerful people are giving money to all the time. And they still don't have enough money to even have a place to live. And that really sucks. 
They take the time, though, to dunk on Anthony, at which point I wrote in my notes, they are my spirit animals, and that is truly how I felt. They call Anthony an ass, and I appreciate it. So good work, Sienna and the Modiste. In this scene, though, the Modiste is speaking with an English accent. She normally speaks with a French accent. What the fuck is happening here? I am perplexed. I am confused. Is the Modiste someone who is English? putting on a French accent or someone who is French putting on an English accent. I am, I am keen on believing that she is normally someone who's English. She is English with an English accent and she puts on a French accent in front of her customers because that's a better way to sell dresses, to have credibility, to run a shot. I have no idea. This is all new information. It's just something I noticed because she's speaking to the customers in a French accent. And then when she's behind the scenes with Sienna, she's speaking with like an English accent. So I don't know who she's deceiving or why she's deceiving them or why it matters, but she's definitely deceiving somebody, but they didn't make a big deal out of it. So maybe it's nothing. Maybe this never comes back and maybe it doesn't matter at all, right? Maybe it's just like a literal writing problem where they were just like, she just acted the scene forgetting about the accent and no one noticed. That seems unlikely to me, but it just really, I was like, holy shit, like, why is she talking like this? It was really confusing. So that's interesting to keep track of. After that conversation, a couple of scenes later, Sienna then goes to the club where Anthony and the Duke are at. I did enjoy this kind of banter between Anthony and the, Anthony and the Duke. It does show you that they are actually friends. They're trying to clear the air on Daphne's business that the duke's not actually interested whatever whatever and that's all cool let's side table that sienna is who we're talking about right now and sienna after you know that she's she has to sleep i want to say she is she has to this is her way of finding lodging to live i don't want to make it seem like this is how she would do it if she had the choice but she is sleeping around to find places to stay so she shows up at like the gentleman's club where anthony and the duke are at we also learned that um late or mr featherington really sucks at gambling there's a scene at the beginning where they're all gambling and and mr featherington's the only one losing money and everyone's laughing at him and i thought i thought that was pretty funny let's let's just keep dunking on the featheringtons why not just throw a scene in there for no reason right you barely even know mr featherington and they're like yeah we're gonna we're gonna damage his gambling reputation for no reason at all. So that was really fun. But Sienna, I don't know if she notices Anthony or not, but I'm going to pretend like she did this whole thing just to piss Anthony off. She goes and she immediately starts flirting with the Duke, which is so funny. Her perspective makes a lot of sense. This is a wealthy, attractive, relatively kind, right? He's a kind person. He calls himself a rake later, but this is someone who's kind, obviously has a great place to stay. From Sienna's point of view, this is perfect. Added benefit Fuck you, Anthony. Like, it's perfect. It's so good. I loved it so much. She invites the Duke to go to see a play, and that's all cool. And Anthony is looking on with horror. And Sienna, cool little arc here, really digging, really picking up what she's putting down. I think maybe because it's just being used in my head to dunk on Anthony more. But hey, you know what? It's working. Sienna's arc ends at the episode with the Duke not coming to her play. She had invited the Duke and the Duke decided not to go. We'll talk about why he decided not to go either, but you can just kind of see the disappointment in, in, in Sienna. The, the guy comes and says, Hey, I'm locking up. And she, she's like asking, but almost like begging a little bit or a really, really just emotional being like, are you sure? Are you sure there's no one there? Like, 
I think she's just like, she tried so hard to have a place to stay for the night. She can't do it. She's going to have to go back to the Modiste. I just felt so bad for her, man. Sienna, you're killing it, dog. I like this character. I like how she's not just like the side piece lady that was getting shagged by the tree at the beginning of the show. I'm so into this. More than Marina's character, but I really like Sienna. Anthony's the last person who has a little bit of an arc before Daphne and Simon, who I will talk about at length after this. Anthony has a few things going on this episode. First, you can tell... He has, he's having a slow change of heart with Daphne. He's being a little more kind, a little more respectful, a little more patient. I don't think the writing on this turnaround was particularly engaging or, um, re- I don't use the word reliable or believable or anything, but that's the direction they're going with his character. There's a few things in there to make him think, hey, he's turning the page a little bit. He's going to do a little bit better with regards to Daphne. But with regards to himself, he's still having quite a few issues. There are multiple times this episode where Lady Bridgerton is trying to get him to go and talk to and dance with other women, twice giving him a list of people or trying to explain like, hey, this is blank person. They're the princess of this thing or whatever it is. And she's given the lowdown, and he's just not taking. He's like, yes, 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 shut up, mom. I whatever, whatever. And so he's not still doing his duty. Not not that I think he should have to do this duty, but just within the show, he has this duty as the man of the house. That he needs to find someone to marry. He needs to have kids. He is more than happy to pass this off on to his brothers. And Lady Bridgerton calls him out a little bit. Later in the episode, she shows up and he's in his office. And I put like in quotes, pretending to work because I don't know what this guy actually does in his off time. Like what work, what work does a Viscount have to do? I don't know the difference between Viscounts and Dukes and whatever. Oh, we got to talk about the Prince too. I guess that'll come up with the Duke and Daphne and the Prince. Now. I told you, he is, he has an arc as well. Anyways, Anthony is doing some pretend work at his desk And Mama Bridgerton comes in and notices that he is still looking at his father's watch, which is an heirloom of the family. The man of the house owns it. And she uses the time as a metaphor really effectively here and says, look, we all know that time is of the essence. And she keeps mentioning the word time, kind of getting it into his head. Like, look, you do not deserve the station you have right now. You are doing a terrible job. Get off your ass and go and do what you are meant to do. You have not earned the office. You have not earned the pocket watch. You have not earned any of this. And it's another show don't tell moment. Show is showing me how Lady Bridgerton feels about Anthony without just straight up just using exposition to just tell me. And I really found that effective. After seeing Sienna at the club earlier, Anthony goes and visits her at the opera. You can tell Sienna thinks it's going to be Simon. I put in my notes in capital letters, is it Simon? And then I put fuck off, it's Anthony. And then I put fuck off in a bunch of capital letter S because I was like, get out of here, Anthony. There are other people I want to watch on my screen right now. But this is where Sienna accuses him of being jealous. And he, I think he really does care about her. After watch, I think he does really care about her in a way that's more than just like, hey, we can shag sometimes and I'm cool with that. He clearly wants to be with her. He clearly wishes that his station in life allowed him to be with Sienna instead of all this other stuff he has to do. Sienna 
says that pretty much just straight up, your position hasn't changed. You will always have to honor your title above anything else. I cannot be with you. This cannot work. No matter how much we try, until you can treat me better, which you will not be able to do with your title and your station, then I cannot be with you. And I put in my notes, as much as I dislike the guy, I do think he really cares for her, which does add layers to Anthony's character, but also just makes me appreciate that, hey, at least he's not doing this out of malice. He, he's, he, he's a bumbling idiot sometimes, but at least he, he doesn't really truly seem to be doing any of this out of malice. He just seems like someone who doesn't have his life together and has a lot of things going on and has his heartstrings being pulled a bunch of different ways. And I can really appreciate that for Anthony, although I think he's still a bit of a dink and isn't doing a really good job with much of anything. I can at least understand why he's acting the way he is. And I did, I did like that he's not just doing this um, to go have sex with somebody like it does seem at least to me maybe this gets flipped later but it does seem to me at this point in the show that he does actually care about Sienna a little bit I've decided I'm gonna weave the prince in and out of talking about Daphne and the Duke because I think I want to spend a lot of time talking about what happened to them this episode they're our main characters and so I want to I want to take the time to really dive deep into what's going on the episode begins pretty much where we left off in terms of their relationship, but it begins with this really cool dream sequence. This is Daphne kind of having a romantic-ish dream, but not really, and she's dancing with the Duke, and it's beautiful, and they're dancing so elegantly, and the way he pulls the glove off of her is just... The, it's the, it's, it, at the time, it was the sexiest thing I'd ever seen until the Duke licked that spoon earlier. I don't know why none of these tricks i guess he licked the spoon later i just want to be specific about when the spoon licking happened because it was officially the sexiest thing i've ever seen and the gif of it the gif of it the gif gif whatever you want to say of it is is equally sexy i will say that right now this dream sequence is beautiful it's elegant i don't know why i haven't been taught any of these glove pulley offy moves or any of the spoon looking sexy licking moves but hey that's totally fine the duke has got them in the bag and Daphne's having this dream and they're all dancing and then everyone disappears and it's just her and the Duke. I could have used with a little less of the cheesy like slow-mo shots of just the Duke's face where you're like in her perspective dancing. That that kind of threw me out of it a little bit. But mostly it's just a really beautiful scene to show you that Daphne, despite what she's trying to tell people, despite what she's trying to do, genuinely does care about the Duke. And look, this guy is super sexy. So watching him dance for extended periods of time, not a huge deal. I mean, Daphne's beautiful too. She is attractive, right? But it's not it's not every day you get a sexy duke in a show. So I'm just going to I'm just going to I'm just going to point it out and appreciate it when it exists. Once Daphne and the Duke Simon they get together. They start phrasing everything and framing this whole episode as if it's uh, as if they're a writing a book called *The Art of the Swoon*, which is the episode title, but also as if they are in a war. Daphne multiple times this episode mentions the Duke as like her general, and they're at a war, and they're trying to they're trying to find her the perfect husband, and it's almost like going to battle. And I really liked that metaphor. I'm not going to do it justice on the podcast, but I think the metaphor made perfect sense for the show and for the characters and the way it was written in and just kind of cheekily put in. Even when 
They are meeting the prince for the first time. This is when it was most effective. The prince walks in and Lady Cowper, who is being set up as the competition to Daphne for the prince, goes and, and, and talks to the, the prince. And Simon and Daphne are having this side conversation where they're whispering to each other like, and then she's going to look at him a certain way and then he's going to move a certain way and then she's going to fan her face and then she's going to look up to his chest but never at his eyes because he's the prince and you never look a prince in the eyes. And then... She says that he's going to tell her her gown is exquisite. Simon comes back with whatever he says. But then when the prince finally makes his way to Daphne, he's, he just says straight up, your gown is exquisite. And Daphne like laughs and snorts and it's so cute and it's so adorable. And the way they set it up was perfect. And, and Daphne blames Simon for the whole thing. And Simon is like, Daphne, I've never heard a laugh so unbecoming. What's wrong with you? And these people, it's working. It's working on me. I like these two together. They're cute. They're funny. I don't know. This whole thing was very, very charming. Sucks for the prince, though. Even with that scene, too, the queen wants them to apologize to the prince. And the prince is like, no, 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 no apology necessary. It's all good. First little stepping stone here that the prince is a decent guy. The prince also has a conversation to the queen related to Daphne, where the queen at lunchtime is trying to tell the prince, like, hey, she is the incomparable of the season. She is the only one on English shores worthy of your attention. You need to go and get her. And he says very kindly, like, I think her heart is already taken by that Duke fella. So I don't know if this is going to work. And the queen pretty much says, like, I don't care. Go get her. You are a prince. Lining up, it's really working for me that this guy is a prince and he is a duke. And I don't know anything about positions in Regency era Britain. There's viscounts, there's barons. What is the difference between a viscount and a baron? I have no fucking clue. But I do know that a prince is better than a duke. And I appreciate that I know that because they're really setting it up in this episode. And I like that there's competition there so the Duke can't just walk all around. The Queen is pretty much saying that you're a prince. Who gives a shit about this Duke guy? No matter how sexily he licks a spoon or pulls a glove off, you need to learn how to do that. But you don't need to learn how to do that even because you're a prince. Yeah, go prince. The prince also asked, like, the one question that I never wondered at all. They, they've mentioned the king a few times now. The prince is straight up like, where, did they keep, where do they keep the king? And the queen just ignores him. I just want to point this out because I have no idea where the king is. I had never thought about it up until this moment. Uh, I didn't know I needed an audience avatar, but the prince providing the audience avatar there and just going like, hey, wait a minute. This is strange. Where is the king? Why is he not at lunch? I thought that was really clever. Daphne and Duke, Daphne and Duke, Daphne and the Duke, Simon. I'm on my second beer now. I'm recording this over like half a day in different sections. So you just, just don't mind me. All right. Don't mind me. I am a Canadian lad who has been described by many of his friends as a lightweight. Not an assertion I agree with, but we're going to roll with it for this podcast just in case things get messy. They go promenading and this is where things get very adult contenty and very, very adorable. Daphne is asking Simon, there must be more to marriage. There must be something more. Whether it's physical, whether it's intangible, there has to be something. And the king, sorry, not the king, the duke, who knows what she's talking about is sex, is just like trying not to laugh in her face. And she can tell that. So she's like, 
tell me. Like, I know you know something. She has that I know you know something vibe. And the Duke's like, I couldn't possibly tell you. And so Daphne and the Duke, they're cute. They're flirting. And the Duke is finally like, fine. It is a, it's a, it's a continuation about what happens or of what happens when you, when you go to bed at night. In bed at night, it's a continuation, a natural continuation. And then she's like, when I sleep, just very innocently, like, when I'm asleep. And he goes, he almost has to not laugh out loud again, because now the Duke is realizing in real time, and we're realizing, not in real time, you kind of got the sense of this, but in like, just behind him time, that Daphne knows Nothing about sex, how it works, what the male parts are, how to make babies. None of the information she needs, and we are going to talk about that. And not only does she not know that, she doesn't know about, like, pleasuring herself. This is a hard thing to talk about while taking it seriously, but also, <laughs> also it's very funny. It's a hard line to walk. And <laughs> the Duke is like, look, go home tonight. Look, listen to me. I got specific instructions for you. Go home tonight. It's like it's like it's like a recipe. You're gonna go home. You're gonna lie in bed. Wait till it's dark. And you're you're just gonna you're just gonna touch yourself. Just feel all over. Anywhere. Anywhere that gives you pleasure. Just try everywhere. It's all good. And but then but then but then if it's not working, like go between your legs. Like he kind of just puts that in there. Like, especially just go between the legs. And then you're just gonna keep going. Things will feel great. Once you find something that feels good, just keep going with it. Just keep making it feel good. And then at the end, you just work it. You get it up, and then there'll be a release at the end. This is the most gentlemanly description of masturbating ever, but it's effective for Daphne. And Daphne needs this info. So I have two problems here. Two, one, sorry, one problem and one thing I really like. First, I really like how the Duke is being kind. He's not being rude. He's not being mean or anything he did have to like not laugh at her but that's understandable he is just really trying as a friend to give her the information he knows he knows that she needs we know that she needs to explore her sexuality and to find a husband and understand that part of a marriage it's such an integral part it's shocking that they don't at least know more about it like how it works and that's how you make babies just last episode, Eloise and Penelope were thinking pregnancy was contagious somehow. And so it's, it really, I get that it's a society thing. I get that in that society at that time, ladies weren't told this thing. But it, it does really make it weird for me that Lady Bridgerton, someone who openly talks a little bit like, not openly, but kind of insinuates sex a little bit just doesn't tell Daphne literally anything about how it work about the different parts about how you put the parts together about how babies are made and it's irresponsible for one because Daphne needs this information like what it, what does she think is going to happen to Daphne she's just going to get married and then this guy that she marries is just going to know what he's doing and she's not going to know anything about it it just seems like a very power imbalancey thing not that that's something they would have cared about back then at all but i think it's completely irresponsible of all the adults in this world to hold so much from the the daughters who need to know it most 
when all of the guys know it. It's not an equal thing here. I wish Eloise had more of a point about this instead of about the painting, because we know because Colin and Benedict last episode were talking about, have you ever been to a farm? We're going to go out and play with our sticks. And Lady Bridgerton gets mad at them for that. Like, no, Lady Bridgerton, tell your freaking daughter the things she needs to know about sex and about her sexuality and of whatever it is because it is going to be a struggle for her to figure that out later and you can see that that struggle is real and the duke is trying his best to maneuver and be kind and give her the information but while still adhering to some kind of social norm because even he doesn't say it straight up he says it in in kind of vague metaphors and like hey just go touch anywhere you like but try this area and then wait till it feels he doesn't just straight up tell her what's going to happen or how to do it. And so even the Duke is kind of weirded out by this. And I understand that it's part of the show and part of the time, but I wish it wasn't, man. 2021 is so good when it comes to this stuff. So I grew up in Western Canada in Vancouver. And so every education system in Canada is very different. Every education system around the world, obviously very different. But I'm just going to compare the education that people like Daphne in this show get, which is absolutely nothing, which is completely irresponsible. Look, I don't think they need to know all about the birds and the bees, right? Like, I think they do, but for this time, maybe not. But just literally nothing seems a bit strange to me. In Vancouver, when I was last, it was 15 years ago when I was 10. So I don't know if anything's changed in the last 15 years. But when I was 10 years old, you go into grade five, and they teach you about all the body parts. All of kind of those private parts that everyone knows about, but no one talks about when you're a kid. They teach you about all the parts. They give you all the correct names. That way, if, you're, if your parents are like, yo, that's a wee-wee, and that's a willy, and they go, that's a penis. And they, they kind of give you the correct terminology and make sure everyone at the age of 10 is on an even playing field with knowledge of all the different parts and all the different names. Then they build on that knowledge in year six and seven. And by year seven, you know fully not only the names of all the parts, but how all the parts work and how sex works and how babies are made and how if you would like to engage in this kind of activity, how to be careful and how to use contraception. These are obviously things that aren't even really invented yet in this time. But I'm just trying to compare and contrast my education with theirs just to prove the point. And you learn all about, even more about the parts, you learn a lot about like ovarian cancer and testicular cancer. So it's not just purely sexual, it's just all these things that you don't normally talk about at home around the dinner table. They are teaching you that, but they also teach you how sex works and how babies are made and how as you get into high school, you might be participating in these types of things. And so here's the basics on how to be careful and the different types of things you can use to be really careful. And they also teach you about doing it alone. Not like instructional. They don't give you like a checklist of things like uh, the Duke does here. But they pretty much go like, it's fine. It's okay. You're not going to go to jail, right? It's not like no one. The, it's fine. Just do it in your room. You're all good. They kind of make it seem like, hey, it's a thing. A lot of people do it. So they make you aware if you're not aware at like the age of 12 or 13 before you go into high school that there's there's things you can do that probably feel good and, and you should go do them. Not should, I don't want to use the word should, they don't advocate for it, but they just make you aware. 
And then in high school, every year through high school, so two weeks a year, five years of high school, they cover a very different topic in another sex ed class. So at first you go over like different situations, different sexual situations you might end up in, whether you're in a relationship, whether you're not in a relationship. They teach you about like power imbalances especially for the women in in my class, they taught about like, hey, there might be like dudes out in the parking lot that are 19 with a car and they look really cool, but you're like 14, so maybe not. And they teach you about consent and how that works and different situations where um, consent may or may not be obvious and like those types of things and that you should never do it if consent isn't like obvious or if people are drunk or if people are doing drugs and they teach you all of that and then you go through all of high school and you end up with a full comprehensive understanding of everything how it works, what everything's called, how to make it work, right? How to how to how to have sex in a relationship, how to do it safely, how to talk about it, right? How how relationships work, power imbalances, like though all of those things are all things that I was taught at school. And Daphne is getting none of this, and I feel terrible for her. I get that it's part of the show. It's not taking it away from it's not taking anything away from the show for me. In fact, it's probably adding to it that they're being realistic. It's just hard to watch it and be so frustrated that Daphne doesn't know all of the things that are important for her to know. Going in, like she's she's trying to get married. Why does she not know this? Daphne then goes and does the deed, and this scene is so funny. You know, she like she like sneakily walks up and locks her door. I, I like the old style locks where you still have to lock it with a key even though you're on the inside, right? They haven't advanced in tech yet where you can lock from the inside without a key. And she locks her door, and she's doing the deed, and she's lying in bed, and she's thinking of the Duke... And in her thoughts, she knows what kissing is. Not that I'm surprised by that, but she does know what kissing is. Because in both of these scenes, she almost kisses the Duke. Doesn't quite, but in her in her head canon, in the dream sequence and her doing the deed with herself sequence, she is thinking about the Duke. She has those pictures of him dancing in, in her head, and that's all really cute. And then she starts doing it, and then it slowly cuts away to the next scene. And I really like that. It's another show-don't-tell moment. I am sure there's going to be some sex scenes in this show when Daphne and the Duke get married, right? If they get married this season, whenever they get married, because it's clear that that's where the show is headed. It's just about the journey to get there. It's clear there's going to be some sort of sexual awakening for Daphne in the show, just based on how much they're talking about it and all the marketing and all of that stuff. But this first initial scene... This is like, show, don't tell me. Trust the audience. I know what's going through her head. I know what she's doing. As an adult, I understand how this is going to go and roughly how this is going to feel. I only know it like from the other point of view, not from her point of view, but roughly how this is going to go. And so I didn't need it. I didn't need to see it. I'm glad that I didn't see it because those scenes can sometimes be really awkward. But they also, like, that would not have added anything to the show. And I'm glad they didn't go, like, full in and act that one out. Or if they did, they cut it. Because I think it was almost cool to just let it be in your head. She's going to it. She's starting She's starting the process with herself. And then she, and it's done. You don't know how it went. You don't know exactly how it went. You assume it went well. But it's just, it's left to your imagination and you don't have to think about it again. 
The next day, though, this is where things start going bad for the Duke and Daphne. Daphne shows up to talk to the Duke outside of a shop, and she is so ready. You can tell by her body language, her facial expression. Again, show, don't tell, loving it. That she is about to report her goddamn findings. She went to bed last night. She locked that door. She was looking for that pleasure the Duke said existed, and she found it. You can tell by the... The, just the expression, the way she approaches them, the way she's about to have this conversation. And in the meantime, the Duke has had a conversation with Lady Danbury. And Lady Danbury was pretty much like, look, you idiot. I want you to marry Daphne so fucking much. Go marry her. What are you doing? But if you're not going to do it, if you're going to be a complete idiot and not marry Daphne, can you at least just commit to not doing it? Because she has the attention of a prince and it was it's irresponsible. And she says, I'll never forgive you your foolishness. So you need to either break up with Daphne and let her move on with the prince, or you need to propose to her, because this is getting ridiculous. And Lady Danbury, firmly on the side of you need to propose to Daphne, but pretty much lays it down for the Duke, and the Duke takes this to heart. And that's where this, this conversation really breaks down for Daphne, and I feel quite bad for her. Like I mentioned, Daphne is ready to report her findings, and I'm so excited to hear about how it went, because I have no idea how you'd write that in a TV show. And the Duke pretty much just starts the conversation with, look, I can't see you anymore. I'm sorry I told you about the thing in the bed between your legs and all that stuff. I shouldn't have done that. It is clear that our ruse has worked. So Daphne doesn't know that this is based on a conversation with Lady Danbury and not how the Duke really feels, but... The Duke is pretty much going on. I can't be with you anymore. Our ruse has worked. The mamas and the daughters have left me alone. You have a prince as a suitor. This is perfect. It's time for us to break away. I'm going to leave London. And then he gets really mean. And I actually really liked this. I'm not pro him being mean to Daphne. But you could tell his meanness was him trying to convince himself that he is not interested in Daphne when you know he so clearly is. This is a man, and you can tell by this scene, who has resigned himself based on a vow to his ma- he's made to his dad, who's resigned himself to a lifetime of not fulfilling his own happiness. He likes Daphne. He clearly wants to be with Daphne. He clearly would spend his life with Daphne if he could, right? But he can't, not because of society. Society's encouraging it. Not because of anyone around him. Just because he's made his own personal vow that he won't. And so in this scene, he's trying to convince himself that it is the right thing to do, that it is a good idea. He calls himself a rake. He tells Daphne that he isn't worthy of her, that they were never friends. That was the most heartbreaking bit. And at the end of the scene, I wrote that Daphne looks heartbroken. And then the end of the scene is intercut with them both going home. And the Duke is fuming and he's telling all of his staff like, hey, We got to get out of here. We're leaving London. You need to expedite matters. We need to leave as quickly as possible. And Daphne is crying and running up the stairs. And I thought it was admirable that she was running and crying. I've never ran and cried before, but I can assume with all the sinus buildup, it's hard to do. So she's got, she's got, she's athletic. She's more athletic than she's letting on yon Daphne because she's running and crying and her help is trying to check on her. And it's a really, really sweet scene. And I felt terribly for Daphne. I felt terribly for the Duke. But it worked. These two are working for me. I wasn't mad that the Duke was upset with Daphne. I understood where he was coming from. This is the opposite of the Marina Featherington thing, where I felt firmly on one side of it at the end. I felt firmly in the middle of this one. I get where Daphne is coming from. I understand where 
the Duke is coming from. I forgot to mention this in Anthony's bit, but Daphne and Anthony have a cool scene earlier in the episode where they are in the kitchen. A very hilarious scene where they both have milk and they're trying to uh <laughs> they're trying to have warm milk before bed because it helps Daphne sleep or whatever, but they don't want to wake up the servants. Well, well. Daphne doesn't want to make a, wake up the servants. Anthony's fully willing to do it because he's a dink. But they both stare at the stove, and Anthony's like, I have no idea how to use this thing. And Daphne's like, well, well, I have no idea how to use this thing. Should we just have cold milk? And they both, they both agree. Anthony in this scene earlier is actually being a little bit kind to Daphne and is saying, hey, I, I understand that the Duke does not want to get married. He does not want to have kids. He is this way. And this is, of course, after Daphne has asked about the Duke. So Daphne asks Anthony about the Duke. And Anthony's like, this is someone who didn't know his father, who never met his mother. And we know the real truth. It's clear here that Anthony doesn't know the real truth. But telling Daphne earlier, this is someone who's never met his father. In reality, his father's just a raging asshole who never met his mother, or who didn't know his father, who never met his mother, who never grew up with siblings, who didn't have a loving household, and so he doesn't want to marry. Anthony obviously doesn't know about this, this vow or anything, but he's got the right of it, and he's trying to explain this to Daphne. And what I liked from Daphne's point of view was that they are... They're at this low point here. They're at this low point here, and Daphne is trying to be with the Duke, but also... Like, she's got this prince lined up, and the Duke is pretty much just putting Daphne in her place and saying, I can't be with you. I have to leave. And it's really heartbreaking for Daphne because she clearly cares about and wants to be with him and doesn't understand why he can't. It's also clear from Simon's point of view that he's taking this vow very seriously. So while their relationship ends a bit rocky here, at least for the time being, I can firmly understand where both of them are coming from, and that makes it super nice. What's even more heartbreaking about their relationship not quite working out is they had this beautiful scene earlier at Somerset House. It's really one of the most emotional scenes that they had where they were talking about artwork and they were looking around and Simon has apparently donated a bunch of artwork to Somerset House for the art gallery. And he's looking at this one painting and Daphne asks him why. And he says, all the other ones I've donated are to my father's tastes, but this one was to my mother's. And then Simon doesn't understand why that is. And Daphne takes the, takes the role of being the avatar for Simon's mother. That must be so emotionally affecting for the Duke. To have someone explain in a nice, in a nice way why his mother, someone he never met, someone he never got to know, someone he only really knows through maybe this one painting... Why she would have appreciated it. And Daphne talks about how it reminds her of being in the country and waking up. And you're all alone, but you're not lonely. And it's beautiful. Like, it just... The way she explains the painting, she's she's doing a kind thing for the Duke, which makes it more heartbreaking later when this relationship falls apart a bit. Because they have this really cute moment where they're both just staring at the painting and Simon's lost in it because he's thinking about his mother. And they just slowly hold hands. And immediately when that situation ends, they stop holding hands. And that's equally as important because they are drawn to each other. They are emotionally connected. And it's working for me. I'm sounding a bit cheesy here, but they are. She is playing the role, empathizing with him 
about losing his mother and trying to help him understand things about his mother that he might have never had the chance to. And that's really emotional. That is something only someone who A, really cares about you, but B, really only understands you can do. You have to care about someone and understand them to, to thread that needle. And it was a really, really beautiful scene. Also, from Daphne's point of view, with the whole going to bed, touching yourself kind of thing, this is the first time somebody has told her the truth about something that she needs to know. The amount of trust she probably felt for the Duke after that conversation would have been astronomical because she knows that every adult in her life does not tell her these things that she needs to know. But the Duke does, and the Duke tells her kindly, and the Duke is giving her this information that he should not be giving her, not because it matters to him, right, but because it matters to her, because she should know it, because this is information she should have. And so all of those things combined between the painting scene and the holding hands, which is really cute and very emotionally affecting and the whole, it's despite how funny it is, the, the touching yourself stuff, it all ends in this kind of blehness. And I felt terrible. And I think you're meant to feel bad, right? And I just, the whole relationship really, really worked for me. And I think, I think that's mostly what Daphne and the Duke got up to this episode. But all of the highs, all of the lows, so much comedy mixed in. The writing is great. The directing is great. All of it's fantastic. Really, really loved it. And finally, at the end of this episode, where the whole relationship firmly breaks down for sure, is that... Daphne shows up at the next ball just gorgeous. She's like, you know what? I don't need no man, but I need the prince kind of man. And Daphne shows up just gorgeous. She's doing her hair differently. She's in this brand new gown. She has this fan. And for some reason, the Duke is at this ball. This really, I don't understand it. I do not understand why the the, the queen, or not the queen, but why... The Duke is at this ball after he said he was leaving and he was angry at himself. Like, why did he come to this ball that he knows Daphne is going to be at? But whatever. Daphne goes right up to the prince and the prince is like, I insist I must have your first dance. Again, he's a, he's a kind guy. I'm getting the sense that he's actually a good guy here, which is awesome. And Daphne says, oh, of course you can have my first dance. She drops her fan on the ground. The prince, ladies and gentlemen, the prince picks up her goddamn fan. Who saw it coming? Everyone who watched the show saw it coming, but the queen did not. And everyone in the room is like, oh my God, the prince lent, lent over and picked up her fan. And it's really cute and it's romantic. And they go to dance. And then Anthony storms out of the, storms out of the ball. Editing Brad here. I definitely meant to say, and the Duke storms out of the ball, not Anthony. Anthony's not even in the scene. And while I'm still confused why the Duke is at this ball, as soon as he sees Daphne, with the prince, he is the one that storms out. I just want to clear that up, because what I said makes no sense, you silly goose, Brad. Come on, get it together. And there goes the episode. And Lady Bridgerton, actually, before before the episode ends, Lady Bridgerton also notices that. And uh, I don't know where it goes, this is how the episode ended, but Lady Bridgerton is picking up on the Duke and Daphne having a bit of a problem. Probably won't mind, though, because she's currently dancing with the prince. 
All right, we've made it to the end of another episode of Bridgerton. I managed to talk longer episode on episode. Maybe after editing, this one gets cut down a little bit. But so far, back to back to back, longer than the ones before. Uh, I'm not sure if I will break down every episode this way, going character by character. I really think in most episodes, it's important to go scene by scene because the scenes are ordered in a specific way to tell the story. So analyzing them that way usually makes the most sense. I just felt like for this episode, there was one main plot line and a bunch of B and C plot, so I broke it down like this. I'm not sure if it worked for you guys or not, but we'll probably be going back to um, sequencing the analysis. But you know, you gotta change it up episode to episode and analyze the story the way you think it's best. If you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, feel free to subscribe to it wherever you are watching it. Uh, Spotify, Apple Music, all of those places. You can head to Twitter at Let's Dive Deep if you want to know what the next podcast after Bridgerton is going to be. Or if you just want to talk to me about Bridgerton over there, I would love to chat with you. You can also email Let's Dive Deep Pod at gmail.com if you'd like to send me your thoughts on this episode. I would love to hear them. Otherwise, thank you so much for watching, and we'll be back in just a couple of days with our review and analysis on Season 1, Episode 4 of Bridgerton. Thank you guys so much for tuning in, and we will see you in the next one. Oh. This one is yours, too. You sound surprised. Suppose I am. It's not at all like the others you donated, is it? It is not. The others are... Well, they were to my father's tastes. If Lady Danbury's to be believed, this one was a favorite of my mother's. I have never understood why. It is very beautiful. It reminds me of waking up in the country. First thing in the morning, when I'm all alone, I've not yet spoken to a soul. I look outside the window and it is serene. As if I could be the only person left in the world and yet somehow I am not lonely. I am comforted, at peace. The others are certainly very grand and impressive, but this one, this one is intimate.